0: Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers kicked it old school during our 10th anniversary flagship season, The Decades. On December 26, 2019 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers rolled it back with stories inspired by the theme 80s. And now our featured storytellers, Molly Mettler, Travis Swartz, and Ben Murray. Let the good times roll. It's story time. Miss Molly Mettler.
1: In 1985, I was living in Devon, England, and I wish I wasn't. Devon is lovely, it's beautiful, and it's also very gray and very wet, and it's known throughout England as lovely, lovely Devon where it rains eight days out of seven. (laughs) And I had moved there from Seattle, another gray and wet place, but I had followed what I thought was going to be my glorious destiny in both work and love, because I had been hired by the Dartington Research Institute in Devon to come and work there. And I was in love with a very dashing Englishman. And I thought, this is my destiny. England is my home. (laughs) Signs pointed to no. It started off okay. It was all very novel and very exciting, and I was enjoying myself. But then I realized I was not fitting in in England. It was entirely too posh for me. The circumstances I was in, I was hanging out in country homes, and there were fox hunts and lots of tweed, and people crooked their pinkies when they drank tea. And it was all just very, very over my head. And my job started to get kind of stale, and it sputtered to a halt because of bureaucracy. And my dashing boyfriend dashed off in another direction, and I was kind of left high and dry. In fact, I was stuck in the countryside with a flock of sheep. And the high point of my social calendar was uh, sharing tea and crumpets with the vicar. And it was all kind of very sad. And I was so lonely for American energy that I religiously watched Cheers on TV. (laughs) And the theme song, which talks about you want to go where everyone knows your name, um, made me all misty-eyed. So when an offer came from Healthwise here in Boise, a a recruitment offer, I jumped at the chance because I wanted to escape England. And I did. But I was going to Boise, Idaho. (laughs) Boise was not unknown to me because of my family. Before I was born, my father, who was in the Air Force, was assigned temporary duty at Mountain Home Air Force Base. And he brought my mom and then four kids up to Boise with him. The four kids ranged in age from age six down to infant in arms. They rented a basement apartment in a a firehouse, in a farmhouse out on Kama Street, up on the Boise bench. And the farm where they lived is now Kasha Park. 68 years ago, the bench was largely farmland, and that's where my mother lived full-time with four kids and no car. The six-week temporary assignment stretched into a six-month order. And my mom had to scramble to get my brother into school, and she had to scramble to get cold-weather clothes for all the other kids. And they scrambled to improvise Christmas that year as well. And the stories that came out of that six-month scramble Formed the basis of a whole bunch of stories that I heard growing up in my family. It was part of our family lore. So I thought I knew what I was getting into, but my prospective employer had gone ahead and sent a Chamber of Commerce brochure describing Boise, and in it it said, 200 days of sunshine a year. And they also said, you can ski and golf on the same day. And I thought, I don't do either of those things, but okay. (laughs) I was just excited about the sunshine and the possibility of a new place. So I left England in late January of 1985 and went to accept what I thought was going to be my temporary duty assignment in Boise, Idaho. I set off with one suitcase and one purse. I stopped off in Virginia to see my folks and to pick up a car, a real sweetie of a 1978 Chevette that I called the Tin Can. And that Tin Can was going to deliver me across the United States in the depths of winter. And not only me, but my friend Tricia, a New York City gal to the core who wanted to see the middle of America. Why she wanted to do that in February, I have no idea. But I was glad for the company. As soon as that Chevette was mine, it started to fall apart. When we got to Dayton, Ohio, the adhesive that held the chrome trim strips next to the car started to fail. So along the passenger side, the trim was going like this. But on my side, it was going like this as we barreled down the interstate. And I never got that fixed. And around Grand Island, Nebraska, the headlights failed. Well, they didn't fail entirely because you could pull over to the side of the road with the engine still running, get out of the car and thump the hood over by the headlights and then they would come on again. (laughs) That car was one irritant after another. I got a flat tire, we skid off the road in an ice storm. The heater was sickly, but worse was to come and it wasn't the car. that long, lonely stretch of I-84 by Snowville, Utah. You've been there. You don't want to be there, but you've been there. I discovered there that my purse was gone. Oh, no, say the women. Yes, my purse was gone. And I had no idea which restroom, restaurant, or rest stop, I had left it, and I didn't even know if maybe it had been stolen, but I did know that I had no money. My wallet with its cash, its credit cards, and checkbook was gone, and I had no ID. My Washington State driver's license and my U.S. passport were gone. I was a four-hour drive away from Boise, and I was going to someplace where no one knew my name, and I wasn't even going to be able to prove I had a name. So I kind of started to fall apart, kind of like the car. My headlights went out. My trim was flapping. I was skidding off the road. But luckily, Trisha was with me, and she kind of settled me down. She lent me money, and she paid for our lodging at the Motel 6. Out by the airport, and she stayed an extra two days to help me get acquainted with Boise. Boise was bad. It was in 1985. For those of you who were here, it was ugly. The, chamber of commerce brochure had lied like a rug. There was this huge gray pall over the city that smelled god-awful. I later learned that the pall over the city, the cloud over the city, was called the inversion, and the smell was called the sugar factory. We drove downtown in the midst of this thick and downtown was just a series of empty, dirt parking lots. And we drove down Main Street, and a tumbleweed rolled down Main Street. And Trisham, my New Yorker friend, laughed out loud. So then we decided we were going to go get a latte because... We needed a coffee shop, and we drove around in concentric circles starting on Main Street, and there was no coffee shop to be found. We ended up at a Denny's. (laughs) And then on Saturday night, we were looking for entertainment. (laughs) The two offerings (laughs) were a tractor pull. a tractor pull, and a concert by Myron Florin, Lawrence Welk's accordion player. (laughs) On Sunday, Trisha left me in the Motel 6 where I sat, sniveling, and saying, what have I done? What have I done? I've moved to Boise, Idaho. What have I done? Monday didn't start any better. In fact, I walked into my office, or the place where my office was, and I blundered right into the middle of a staff meeting. And all these heads swiveled around and looked at me and a voice said, who are you and what are you doing here? They thought I was a boy from Boise High School who had just decided to walk into the office. (laughs) That got settled out. And my boss brought me a cup of coffee, seated me on his office couch and gave me a cup of coffee, which I promptly spilled all over me and his white office couch. Then I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And why does he have a white office couch? (laughs) Luckily, my boss funded me some money so that I could get a cheap apartment and there were cheap apartments back then but I had no money for furniture, so I slept on the floor in my coat. And then I went out and bought a bowl and some milk and some cereal, and my first meal in that cheap apartment was a bowl of grape nuts that I ate with my fingers because I had forgotten to buy a spoon, (laughs) which was just pathetic. But things slowly started to shift. The sun came out, and it kept coming out day after day. It was like a miracle, and after 10 years of Seattle and England, I thought it was mighty weird, but I liked it. And there was one day that I went to the post office, and the sun was shining, and the postal clerks were very nice to me. And I came outside, and I stood on top of the steps in the post office, and the sun was coming down. And a random nice guy came up and said, good morning. And I thought, wow, they don't do that in England. Not even the vicar does that. Another good thing that happened was that I got my purse back with everything in it, thanks to a nice lady who found it hanging on a hook in a restroom in a Chevron station in Rock Springs, Wyoming. (laughs) And bit by bit, all the stories that I had heard my mother tell as I was growing up came back to me. She had said that the people of Boise were kind to her and nice to the kids that the farm wife had arranged for my brother to be enrolled in school, and that the neighbors up there on the bench had organized a clothing drive so that the kids had warm clothes to wear during the cold months. She said that there was such a spirit of generosity here that it had touched her. And she said that some of the kindest people she ever met with the people she met in Boise, Idaho. So, my plans changed. My two-year temporary assignment has transferred itself into a 35-year long haul. I found work that I love, I helped raise a family, and I found my true love. I was firing on all cylinders again. So Boise is the place for me. Boise is home. Thank you.
0: Travis Swartz.
2: I was a teenager in Boise, Idaho in the 1980s. I have two daughters who were teenagers In Boise, Idaho, in the 2000s, we had vastly different experiences. When my daughter was 13 years old, she had one item on her Christmas list. Most years she had like 500 things in alphabetical order and they were like in order of importance. But that year she had one item. Because I think she thought, well, if I only ask for the one thing that I want, then he's going to be, you know, sort of pigeonholed into only getting me that one thing that I want. So, on Christmas morning, my daughter Zoe came out and we all started opening gifts. And she opened gift one by one, and one by one, it wasn't what she wanted. But she was really good with it. And she smiled and she said, thank you, and then she tore into another box of disappointment. <laughs> She got socks, and then she opened a shirt, and then she opened some leggings, and then she got more socks. And then she opened up a box, and it was a pair of UGG boots that were fur-lined, which was also not what she wanted. But she said, thank you, and she went on opening gifts. And even after she opened the final gift, and it was not what she asked for, she smiled, and she said, thank you but she was really disappointed. And I could see it on her face. It was sort of like Ralphie in A Christmas Story when he thought, oh man, I didn't get that BB gun. And so just like the father in A Christmas Story, I thought, "Ah hell, I'm gonna have to make an executive decision here without consulting her mom, my wife, her mom. And I said, well, okay, there is one more gift. And her eyes lit up and she smiled because she knew she had me. (laughs) She knew that she was gonna get what she wanted because she knows her dad. And I said, okay, so tomorrow, We're going to go down to the store and we're going to get you a cell phone. And she cried. Good God, she bawled. I mean, she was more excited than I've ever seen her in my entire life. And we've been to Disneyland. She was excited because now she was going to be in constant contact with all of her friends, texting and Snapchatting and Instagramming and LOL and FML and all the rest of it. She was so excited and I was excited. Because now I could text her day and night, anytime I wanted. Where are you at? What are you doing? Who's there? Are her parents there? Text me her parents' number. And I was excited because then I could call her anytime I want, day or night. Hey, where are you at? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's there? Let me talk to her parents. You guys going anywhere? You need to check in with me every two seconds. Hey, hey. If I text you, you text me back. If I call you, you call me back or I'm taking away the phone. (laughs) Zoe had it in her head that that cell phone was the keys to the world, but I knew that it was a short leash to her parents. You see, Zoe didn't understand the freedom that that cell phone was going to rob her of. But I did. Because I grew up in the 80s. And in the 80s, We didn't have cell phones, we had freedom. My parents didn't know what the hell I was doing or where the hell I was 90% of the time. We didn't have texts, we had notes. We used pens, we would scribble words on a piece of parchment like a caveman. We would leave it on the kitchen counter. Hey, gone to EJ's, be back later. I could write a note at three in the afternoon, disappear, do whatever the hell I wanted until 10 p.m. We were on airplane mode at all times. I didn't have some sort of GPS cellular communication device in my pocket. I had plausible deniability. I could spend an entire afternoon smoking weed down in Julia Davis Park, playing hacky sack. I'd come home, I'd start stumbling to my room. My dad would be like, hey, where the hell have you been? I'd be like, I was down at the library. We were studying for a history test. I left you a note. And that would be that. If I could get out of the house, and I could, I could do anything that I wanted, as long as I didn't get caught. So I spent my time looking for hiding places, places to hide from my parents, my teachers, the police, anybody that could tell me what to do, or more importantly, what not to do. So me and my friends had hiding places from one end of the valley to the other. I can remember packing 10 people in a two door, Dotson B 210, we drive clear out to the end of South Cole into the desert, we have a bonfire, we drink beer until we pass out. I can remember driving to the other side of the dam out at Lucky Peak, stripping naked, swimming, skinny dipping, naked, case of beer under, you know, one arm, out to the docks, one in the morning, I can remember 40 of us caravanning out to Eagle Road, clear the, out to Eagle Road, in the middle of shit nowhere. Eagle Road, is that even in Idaho? We were out there because we couldn't get caught. We were out in Eagle Road, who the hell's gonna come out there? Nobody, we had bands, we had kegs, it was fantastic. But my favorite hiding place in the entire valley was on the corner of 8th and Main in a building called the Eastman Building. So the Eastman Building, it's the Zion Building now, the Eastman Building was a six-story tall building that uh, at the time was abandoned. So by the time me and my friends found it, it had sat empty since the late 70s, so nearly a decade empty. Now in its heyday, the Eastman Building was like, law offices and medical offices and dental offices, but now it was just a giant, like, tall eight-foot plywood fence surrounding it to keep everybody out. And it was a tall enough fence that it was difficult to jump, but it wasn't impossible. (laughs) But it also wasn't completely necessary. I got a drink. Because on a Friday night, my friend Kevin discovered that on 8th Street next to the Eastman building were these big, giant, metal grates. And so we all looked down in these grates, and you could see underneath of them there were these stairs that led down underneath the Eastman building. And we were 16, so we lifted up the grates and we all went down underneath the Eastman building, through a door, and into the basement and it was dark. Pitch black. Couldn't see the hand in front of your face, couldn't see each other, couldn't see anything at all. So we're sort of walking around the room, and the ground feels, you know, sort of like, maybe this is dirt, and the walls feel like, okay, maybe they're rock, they're cold, and then EJ yells out, I found some stairs! And so we all follow his voice over to the stairs, and then we go up the stairs and into the light of the first floor, light coming through the windows, and so we start exploring, and we explore all the hallways, and we explore every single office, and then we go back to the stairs, and then we go to the second floor, and we go through all the hallways and all the offices, but the Eastman building wasn't what I expected an abandoned building to be, because most of the offices still had furniture. They had chairs and they had desks and they had filing cabinets and the filing cabinets were full of like papers. It was like there was a zombie apocalypse or Chernobyl had happened as opposed to people like actually moving out of the building. And so I sat down at a desk, I put my feet up and I'm like, Carol, my secretary, bring me some coffee. Bring me the Wilson Report! But my favorite office was a dentist office on the third floor because the dentist had left behind like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of x-rays with the patient names right on them, which is a clear, and you back me up Molly, it's a clear HIPAA violation to do something like that. So I would sit there with a lighter and read these x-rays and diagnose. Oh, hell oh my god god damn gingivitis in the peterson account but the dentist office was not the ultimate goal the ultimate goal of course was the roof and we would go up to the roof and we would lay there and look up at the stars and have Deep, meaningful 16-year-old conversations about the meaning of life and how, shit, man, why weren't the generations before us talking about this stuff? And it was stuff that nobody in the world could ever understand, complete nonsense. And then we went over to the edge of the building, and we looked down, and there was that tumbleweed going across the thing, and there were all those parking lots that were empty, and all the other buildings that were empty, and then... All of a sudden the cruisers started coming by. And you're like, holy shit. And then they would drive by again. And then they would drive by again. And then I was like, holy shit, is that that same Camaro? And then that thing would come back and you go, oh my God, that's the same Camaro. And then it would drive by, is there like two white Camaros? Did I mention we were high? And then it would just come back around again and another Camaro and it was the same Camaro and it completely freaked us out. It was a fantastic place to hide. In 1987, the Eastman building burned down. One less place to hide. In 1988, I graduated from high school. I moved to New York. In 1991, I got a girl pregnant. We had a daughter. We named her Jake. In 1997, I had another daughter. We named her Zoe. And then in 1999, I got my very first ever cell phone. (laughs) And I'm a freelancer, and I thought, oh, hell yeah, this thing is gonna give me so much freedom. I can be at any coffee shop, I can be at home, I can be anywhere in the hell I wanna be, and I'm at work. Because I didn't realize, like Zoe hadn't realized, that freedom that this was actually going to take away, because I could be anywhere, and God damn it, I'm at work. And so in 2000, I took up fly fishing, and that became my new hiding place because I only go fly fishing and I go a lot in places that do not have cellular service. (laughs) Now yesterday, my daughters came over for Christmas and we all ate and we all opened gifts and we had a chance as a family to sit in the living room together and completely ignore each other while we looked at our phones. And I'm watching Zoe and Jake on the other side of the room and they're doing whatever and tapping away. And I wished that the gift that I could give them was the experience of being a teenager completely free in Boise, Idaho in the 1980s. I'm getting a
0: call. (laughs) Please welcome Ben Murray.
3: When most of us think about the 1980s, if we ever do, we recall those grand cultural icons like Mr. T, the Cabbage Patch Kids, big hair bands, don't forget Millie Vanilli. But when my wife and I allow ourselves to drift back to the 1980s, we recall the big cultural icon on the East Coast, the People's Express. (laughs) First of the low budget, no frills, discount airlines. The story I want to tell you tonight though is about a flight we took with the People's Express, my wife and our young son, and how a plane load of strangers, 30,000 feet in the air, came together as a community to help a small child who was critically ill, and his little young family, that was us. And you've heard the story about how it takes a village to raise and nurture a child. This was the best example we ever experienced. So let me set the scene. We're more than halfway back on the plane. The flight attendants are coming up and down the aisle, collecting the fares. No credit cards, no checks. It's all a cash transaction on the People's Express. I'm fishing through my pockets because three people, that's uh, $92 to fly to Jacksonville, and that's more money than I've ever had at once. So as I'm getting the money, she says very nicely to my wife, I'm afraid your son is going to have to sit in his own seat for takeoff. He's a little too big to be in your lap. Now Reuben is seven years old, he has Down syndrome, but he's very small. He's more like a toddler than he is a seven-year-old boy, so okay, no problem. And she's moving over, and we're squeezing around, and she gets him latched into his seat. And just before the lady walks away, Ruben responds to this whole thing by going This huge burst of diarrhea, which is not anything new for us. Like, it's been going on all day. We sat in the Newark airport for eight hours because all outbound flights were grounded. Never had a reason for that, but we just sat there. We always carried an emergency bag with us, diapers, baby wipes, an extra change of clothes or two, and we burned through those while we were standing in that terminal, and mostly we were standing because there were so many people crowded in there. But here we are. We're about to take off. So I run to the back of the plane to get some paper towels, but there aren't any. So I come back to the seat, and I'm waving to the flight attendant, and I say, um, you know, I need help, and she's waving to me more firmly, get down because we're taxiing and I'm not even aware of it. So I get in my seat, the plane takes off, but right after the wheels go up, she comes down, what's the situation? So I tell her, we don't have any supplies and we gotta change them as she realizes from her last visit with us. So she says, oh, fine, I'll take care of that. And she goes to the front Comes back a minute later, and she says, well, uh, sorry about that, but there are no paper towels. And um, actually, there's no water on the plane, and uh, no soft drinks or snacks or food or alcohol. It was good later that there wasn't alcohol. But there's nothing, so we're just going to have to cope. How can I help? And that's the first moment when the village started to rise up for us. So she wandered, I said anything, a diaper, something we can clean him up with. She wanders behind us, comes back a minute later, drops a diaper and some of my na- napkins in my lap. And we do kind of a dry clean, if you get the picture. It's not really as effective as you might think, but it's the best we can do. So we park him against the side of the plane by the window, and his head is back and He goes to sleep, and we're like, oh, thank God, only an hour and 40 minutes we'll be home. About 15 minutes later, (laughs) the whole thing starts over again. We wave the flight attendant. She comes by, knows the deal. The next hour plus, she's going up and down, begging, borrowing, stealing, doing whatever she can to help us here. I mean, more napkins, another diaper, later another diaper, some Kleenex. Uh, Two handkerchiefs even somehow made their way to us. One was embroidered, you know, and we cleaned them up, and then I folded inward, and I look at my wife, and I'm like, do we send it back, or what do we do? She came up with the bright idea, stuff it under the seat. So (laughs) there it, lay. But uh, people were just so fantastic. I mean, finally we needed some kind of liquid to clean them up. And the flight attendant, one of them came by, and she found a, like a third of a bottle of Pepsi. So we use that. No, it works. It does okay. It's, it's a little bubbly. But and then it leaves sort of a sticky residue that is a problem later, but that's another story. And uh, but it, the supplies just kept coming. When the Pepsi ran out, a bottle of Mountain Dew showed up. Whatever. Who drinks that? And, but it it is good for this purpose and we used it. At one point, the flight attendant comes up and she's got two sandwiches. And she says, there's an older couple a few rows down. They think you need the food more than they do. And, of course, we're looking at our hands now. (laughs) like, Okay, (laughs) thank you. Um, But I I just want to say that Never have you seen so much kindness from so many people. And, you know, it's the Christmas season, and, you know, we're just starting the sort of downhill away. And I thought, what a perfect story to close the holiday season, but to hear about how a group of strangers pulling together, become a village, contributes so much to helping this child and his parents make it through. It was one of the great experiences of our life, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, I'm sorry, I I forgot one thing. Um, Everything was fine, and it was kind of a hallmark movie ending for us. Until that is, the first passenger vomited. And it was across the aisle and up one row. Uh, An older woman, we couldn't really see her, but We heard this, like, (laughs) and she vomited over herself and the guy sitting next to her. I don't know if she reached for the bag, but she couldn't get it. But this man shot out of his seat, like, and hit his head on the overhead and leaned forward and spray barfed the whole row in front of him, starting from the hair down. And everyone around us is in shock because I don't think I mentioned. There is a somewhat noxious odor to the diarrhea, to the darkened handkerchief that's under the seat and the other things. And my wife says to me, you know, if this was a movie, mass vomiting would break out right around now. And she no sooner gets the words out of her mouth than you hear behind us, And then to the front, and we can't, you know, we're ducking down here. And then <laughs> and then this one, pooh, poo. It's like, who's spitting? What the hell is that? But they are. And it just, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, he's, he's this little boy. At this age of seven, he's already had like 18 or 20 surgeries. and. The average person has like 25 or 30 feet of bowel, and he's had like 10 GI surgeries in his life, and it's gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. And in the best managed circumstances, which we're a young couple, so, but in the best managed circumstances, things move through him like a freight train sometimes. (laughs) And when he gets sick like this, and the diarrhea just starts to evolve, It's like the orange blossom special coming around the mountain. There ain't nothing you can do. Clean them up, keep them calm, keep yourself calm, wait it out. But the odors, I mean, I'm a a nurse and I would describe it, I would write in the report, this is the worst GI bleed smell I've ever been around. But most of you aren't healthcare people, so just let me say, think for a moment that you laid down in a bed of raw sewage tonight or maybe the worst fast food restaurant in your neighborhood and you jumped in the dumpster and spent the night and you got up and you know that kind of clingy odor that you might carry it was like that just the diarrhea but now there's all this vomiting going on and suddenly we become aware of this this sort of crowd noise, like when you guys laugh and you go, and there's all this background talking, and then suddenly some of the voices cut through clearly. And you know the village helping the child? Now they're villagers and they've got torches and pitchforks (laughs) and they're looking for Frankenstein or a seven-year-old, whichever one they can find, and we start hearing these voices. One person just all of a sudden clearly is like, Kill him I'm serious. And another one's like, throw him off the plane. And then throw the son of a brick out the window and his parents too. And we're like, holy God in heaven. And this is going on and on, and this just this. It was unbelievable. It was frightening. And then finally, the plane starts to descend. We're like, oh thank God, we're almost home. The captain comes on the overhead and he says, all passengers must remain in their seats at the gate until we've accomplished the medical evacuation. <laughs> and again, it's like, no! Leave him on the plane! Kill him! No! Let us off! And they're just screaming again. And then, of course, interspersed with "blah, <coughs> blah." <coughs> and remember, there's no water, no paper towels. So, the next time someone in your family has an accident, clean them up with a dry cloth. It, 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 it works. The hair goes great. Uh-huh. But anyways, and, and think for a moment, medical evacuation. When I think of that, I think of a, an ambulance roaring across the tarmac, and uh, sirens, lights flashing. Uh, they pull up, park under the nose, the paramedics jump out, take the stretcher up the stairway into the plane, load the child, the, take him off. The parents follow, dragging their suitcases down the aisle, and they go off to medical aid. People's Express is a no-frills airline, <laughs> so medical evacuation looks like this. The father, that's me, grabs his carry-on from the overhead and puts it in front of him like a shield. He picks up the child and tries to cradle him like a football fullback going through the line on a rainy day. His wife is tucked right in behind and her carry-on is holding it back here as a back shield. And we start walking, stumbling, staggering, slip sliding on vomit which is everywhere. And people are yelling, kill him, get him. Some people actually are slapping at us as we're going down the aisle. And then we finally break out into the free, clean air. It's like, oh my God, and we just run into the terminal all the way through, out the back door to the parking lot, get in our car. We've only got a one hour ride to our home in South Georgia and medical help. We got there in 35 minutes. So let me wind it down by saying, we're in the emergency room and I work in this hospital only for a couple of weeks, but I work there. And they, so we're sitting at the nursing station in the middle of the ER. And they have Reuben in this room with the curtains pulled. And we can only see legs under the curtain moving around. And IV stuff comes in and medicine, bag of something comes in. A ventilator comes in. That's not a good sign. And nothing. And finally a nurse comes out after about half an hour. And she walks right towards us, and we pop out of our chair. We're like, oh, God, what's the update? What's happening in there? And she takes one look at us, puts her eyes on the deck, and makes a big arc all the way around us. And then whatever she did back there, she made an even bigger circle coming back around to avoid us, goes back in the room. Five, six, seven minutes later, the doctor comes out. I know he's the doctor because as soon as this guy came out from the curtain the aide or the secretary sitting there said, "Oh, there's doctor." And I said, "Who the hell is that? The doogie hauser of South Georgia?" I mean, he like just walked off the TV screen or he just finished his bar mitzvah somewhere. He's just a kid. And he walks over to us and he's all slumped down and his face is drooped and he's got watery eyes and he comes over to us and we're like, "Oh my god, what's happened? Is he died? What have we done?" And he looks up at us and he says, no, he's not dead yet. And I just want to say, uh, any medical students to be in the audience, those four words, he's not dead yet, is not the opening line you want to use with his parents. (laughs) But let him continue. He says, the thing is, I've never been alone with a child this sick. I don't know what to do. We're so full of confidence in the new hospital. It was two weeks in the hospital before he was tuned up enough to go home. Thousands of dollars in uncovered medical bills because, oh yeah, he has Down syndrome. That's called a pre-existing condition. And there were, But he made it, he survived. There were 10 more surgeries to come. There was a tracheal artery rupture in our living room after a routine tonsillectomy and he crossed the street without looking and a car met him in the middle of the road, broken bones and a head injury and uh, three months or so in rehab. But he made it, out of the 80s, out of the 90s, all the way to today. He's here tonight. (laughs) Now those other golden icons of the 1980s, Mr. T, the Jane Fonda workout tapes, the fanny pack, They're mostly consigned to the dustbin of Americana now. Poor People's Express never even made it out of the 80s. They drowned in a sea of red ink. Now, let me close by saying that my wife and I were unable to attend the funeral services for People's Express. But I feel somewhat confident tonight that had we been there, what we would have seen was the mourners coming out of the church after the services and heading into the reception room, where the People's Express crew, of course, had not provided water, soft drinks, food, (laughs) snacks, or anything else. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise. Our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and our show sponsor, Apple Plumbing. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello and our musical guest was DJ Grant Olson. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel at Story Story Boise. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.